This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and if this is your first time, thanks so much for joining. If you've been here since the beginning, glad to have you back. Today's interview is a wonderful discussion I had with debut author Nikki Payne. And this is one of those discussions where it doesn't happen too often, although it has happened uh, frequently on this podcast, it feels like. I meet someone and instantly feels like we have been close friends or I I told Nikki relatives for a long, long time. We hit it off instantly. We had a rapport that I just was obsessed with. And Nikki and I discussed something really interesting. She's a cultural anthropologist and something that she gets paid to do is ask big questions and then find the answers to them. And the question that we talked about that she's been obsessed with for most of her life, is this concept of ugliness in society and like what makes a person or a place or a thing ugly and why does that change from society to society, from culture to culture? A really interesting, super fascinating discussion. I think you'll get a lot out of this chat. We had a really great time discussing it. And Nikki's new book, Pride and Protest, is a Jane Austen retelling, reimagining, you know, kind of a, a story of pride and prejudice, if you will. We get into that very heavily in this discussion as well. I want to give you a book recommendation, but last week was the week that I gave you a, a reimagining or retelling of sorts. So I don't want to do that again, just because I do want to give you the ability to <laughs> You know, get a little bit of a different recommendation from me. So this recommendation is actually from past guest, Claire North. And what I want to recommend is The First 15 Lives of Harry August. You may remember Claire North as the author of Ithaca. Claire and I discussed synesthesia, her fun, wonderful job where she lights live music and all sorts of stuff. But I got a chance to read The First 15 Lives of Harry August this week. And it's really, really interesting. It's basically a person who relives their life over and over and over. I wouldn't call them immortal, but basically they get you know reborn as the same person. Every single time they pass away, they are born in the same place at the same time. More or less, the large scale aspects of the world don't change, but they can change small things here and there. And what ends up happening is they befriend another person who has the same experiences as them. And that friend ends up having ulterior motives. And so Harry August spends life after life trying to find a way to stop this person from ending the world. Really interesting 
funny in a way that I wasn't expecting. But yeah, it was it was very, very unique. It really reminded me only almost like the the writing of Andy Weir and Hail Mary. Um uh, Project Hail Mary rather. So yeah, I think you'll really, really like that. I was a big fan of the first 15 lives of Harry August by past guest Claire North. So check that out. And before I get to my wonderful discussion with Nikki Payne, just want to remind everyone, any time you'd like to reach out, you can find me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I'll be happy to answer any of your questions. I'll send questions along to past guests if you have any of them. And anytime you leave me a rating or a review, I will give you some book recommendations. All you have to do is screenshot that and send it to me as part of your email. And I'll be happy to give you some customized book recommendations. I also want to let people know as a reminder, if you send me any of your passions, just send me an email with whatever the thing is that you're passionate about. Uh, once a month, I'll be giving away a bookshop.org gift card to one lucky winner. And last thing, uh, there was a really interesting conversation that came up on one of my Instagram posts last week about a specific book that I had talked about reading. And it kind of sparked this idea of creating some Zoom sort of like book club, book discussion spaces. I got an overwhelming response on Instagram where people do seem very interested in, in taking part. And I would love to hear from you as well. So again, shoot me an email, passionsandprologues at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at passionsandprologues. Let me know if you'd be interested. I'm thinking of setting up a Zoom discussion about a specific book at first, and then maybe some additional recommendations for anyone who wants to join uh, in early December sometime. So again, let me know what your thoughts are. I would really, really love to hear back from you. That'd be really great. Okay. That's enough housekeeping. That's all the things. Uh, really excited. If you are listening to this when it comes out and you celebrate the Thanksgiving weekend, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, get some food, connect with family and friends, all that good stuff. But for now, I am extremely excited to say I hope you enjoy this discussion with Nikki Payne on Passions and Prologues. All right, everybody, I'm back. I'm super, super excited. Right before we started recording, Nikki and I were bonding over other work things that we, we do, and even more excited than usual to, to ask this question. Nikki, what is something that you're super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? Oh, man, I am super passionate about ugliness, about what it means for something to be ugly in society, what it means for something to be beautiful, and just being ugly has always obsessed me. Yeah, ugliness. Oh, my gosh. I love this. So, okay, this is amazing. I One of my favorite things about this podcast is not knowing what a person's going to say before I ask this question. And, like, my head is percolating right now. So when was, when did you first discover that this was something you were super passionate about? Um, I think it would start with, um, with watching the color purple as a child. Mm -hmm. And I was watching Celie who had these plaits in her head and she, like the, the main driving force of that story was that she was an ugly woman. Mm -hmm. Right. And that she was like undesirable for all these reasons. And even the main character, her husband, Mr., when she's leaving, he says, you know, what are you going to do? You're black, you're ugly, you're a woman. And so being ugly was just part of her character. And mm -hmm. she just still deserved the world. She still deserved all this love that she ended up having for herself and choosing it for herself. 
But I, I love that movie so much. And I just connected so much with this ugly protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that, that it made me just question the ugliness for a very long time. I was very young when mm-hmm. I um, watched The Color Purple. But like, even as I grew and like started being interested in anthropology and human society and culture, even then, my uh, doctoral research was about aesthetics and power mm-hmm. and how people um, connect and attach beauty and goodness to, you know, things that feel uh, associated with power. And that, that it's just, it's always obsessed me. So, I taught a class at the University of Pennsylvania called The Politics of Ugly. Like, I'm very, I was very into it, you know? Okay, hold on. Before I ask my other questions, what was, like, the, um, like, what's the synopsis of that course? That is super interesting. I, I oh. might just be lying. Just to, I, re, I feel like every time you say something, I have nine questions that come already. So, like, what was, like, the, like, hypothesis or synopsis of that class that you wanted people to, to walk away with? Oh, man. I can tell you that we... Um, started from like the beginning, we started with reviewing propaganda posters, right? Mm -hmm. Starting with like Nazi propaganda posters and those classic movies. And we talked about why it was so important for the Jewish characters in these posters to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. Like, um, what does that mean if they had these dark and beady eyes and like what does it mean for them to have this kind of nose mm-hmm. like what types of things are you saying about this population we did deep analysis of the um, Rwandan genocide mm-hmm. and some of those early posts that came out on the on the radio about like the Hutus versus the Tutsis that people had begun to distinguish themselves physically first mm-hmm. and the narrative about who they were and building distinction from the other person physically. Oh, like they, they have this long nose, look at their sloping foreheads, they can't be trusted, right? And so those, the, the way that something becomes packaged is as ugly, is mm-hmm. it can tell you so much about a society, like what it's up to and kind of where it's going. So I don't even know if this is an answerable question in a book podcast, but I've thought a lot about this. So my, my dad's side of our family is, is Jewish and like we have always joked, like our side of the family, like you can, you can tell when someone like someone else is Jewish. They got like, like, you can just tell like they're we're we're of the same tribe as you know people like to joke and say. But like, I I think about you're talking about aesthetics and how depending on where you are in the world, a different aesthetic or time uh, or the time of history, like depending on where you are, quote unquote attractive means something wholly different. And like, how do you go about even researching? how the the things that we consider attractive in the United States versus Uganda versus China, like how do you even go about unpacking all of that? That's a huge question. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. I love huge questions. First of all, great question. One of the things that I started studying, and this was really interesting, were um, these rituals of beautification in Mauritania, right? Mm. I think the word is called le, le bleu or like garbage, you know, that process that like when, when the French are like fattening a goose to make foie gras. So what they do to girls from like maybe kind of nine to 16 mm-hmm. is they start um, essentially force feeding them meal and cereals and like mm-hmm. millet and all kinds of things and limit physical interaction and physical like running around. Yeah. And they're essentially force feeding these girls 24 seven 
until they're able to get a considerable amount of girth on their bodies, like mm-hmm. to the point where, like it's a bragging right to show your stretch marks. Yeah. So oftentimes they're kind of forced to sit, forced not to move and being fed, not in a comfortable, like hand me my grapes, garçon, you know, type of way, um, very much being force fed um, mm-hmm. food uh, uh, to the point of throwing up. Right. And this is seen as a beautification ritual to prepare them for marriage because mm-hmm. the weight and girth and the association of of having extra weight is um, associated with being of a different class, right? Mm-hmm. To not, um, to, to be of a leisure class and to afford the extra food, right? And mm-hmm. so this, the, the way that people associate um, a young woman with being beautiful um, oftentimes can map very neatly to mm-hmm. what is considered valuable and good in that society. So as someone who has so much knowledge about this, because like I, I think I find out things all the time now, usually on TikTok, which is weirdly like how I've become like it's such that's a, real. TikTok University is real. Yeah, like one of the things I, I recently learned. Um, so I'm a one of my like TikTok algorithm things is uh, like farming and like like local farming things. It's just very soothing to me, and I learned the fact that the reason that people have grass front yards is that that used to be like a social symbol is it basically showed like people don't need to use that space to grow their own food because they can afford to buy food so they put grass in their front yard as like a social symbol and status symbol and like that's one of those things where I'm like oh okay like logically I understand how we got to now what people think of as beautiful you know yards but like are there instances in that because you're right like I I, I remember reading things about how like long, long time ago, like weight and girth was a sign of social class. Whereas like, if you would see someone who like nowadays we see someone like six pack abs and like, they'd be like, you would think like, Oh, that's a farmer. That's lower class. So like, how do you think that shifted? Cause now I feel like, honestly, I feel like in the United States, like it shifts like every five years, what people oh. think is attractive. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's shifted a lot because um, leisure now is associated with having the time to take care of one's body, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you can think about those major shifts in the industrialization of food, one of the things, this is like to America's credit, one of the things that we just like freaking nailed mm-hmm. in the 1930s and 40s was food science. So we had this, um, you know, big depression on our hands. People were starving and food scientists were like, hey, we have to make things cheap and nutritious and well and like the birth of like kind of american processed food really starts from this from this place of like Mm -hmm. making cheap food quickly right so like we did it yay success right (laughs) but what what happens right is that the availability of um like overly processed food for um individuals who are indigent right Mm -hmm. has in fact and without the residual spare time to you know, be sitting on a treadmill for two hours or have a personal trainer. What that has actually resulted in is a deep increase in weight problems, diabetes, heart disease, particularly for um, Americans in the United States. I'm saying all this to say that um, that is so slowly shifted because now um, excess weight and like those types of issues associated with weight are now a marker, right, mm-hmm. of poverty instead of of leisure time, right? Mm-hmm. This time is this major currency, right? 
Yeah. So I'm really interested in how you decided to want to spend so much time. Like you said, you taught a course on this and clearly it's something you think a lot about. Like I think about back when I was like, I want to say like eight or nine, my, if my mom is listening to this, she'll laugh. We went and bought clothes for school that year. And like, I was a little bit of a bigger kid, not really that I was active. I played like lots of sports, but I remember like to this day, I remember my pants. I remember what size it was, but it was like 28 Husky. Like it used Husky. <laughs> husky. I am ruined so many kids nikki i am 36 whole <laughs> years old i still think about that i still have body dysmorphia like i am i run marathons i go to the gym all the time i still see the word husky in my brain all the time and so like i know that has been both for positive and negative a driver in my like health journey i clearly the color purple deeply impacted like your psyche in the way that you see the world and saw the world then like, how did you go from that to deciding, I want to study this and teach it to other people? Like, what was that process like for you? That was a long walk to get to that question. <laughs> First of all, I love long walks. I'm an anthropologist. I love to be told a story. Like, that's literally, if you're a cultural anthropologist, you just sit around the fire and let people tell you about their life. It's <laughs> my entire jam. But um, yeah, so I got there because there's so many ways that people write off um, certain types of things, it's like, especially like desire and sexuality and beauty is like their preference. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that it's so easy for us to write off and say, like, I think this is beautiful because this is me personally. Mm-hmm. These are my feelings and society has nothing to do with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just what I love. And one of the things that I felt like really passionate about is just to question people, to just have them question themselves about where certain types of desire comes from, right? And if you took the time to kind of unravel some things, then like, would all that look the same? And it's fine if it does, like, like what you like, right? But also like, be able to step outside of those things that you take as a given mm-hmm. and try to like truly examine why something is the way it is. That's honestly the major goal of most cultural anthropologists is to have people step a little bit outside of their lived in situation and say, huh, why is that this way? Mm -hmm. How do you think thinking this way and having this type of a brain affects your like day-to-day life? Like, is it one of the, I, I used to, I don't remember which author it was, but it was a very prolific writer and I'm like, when you walk outside, do you just see like 900 stories a day? So I'm, I want to ask you, like when you, when you step outside and you see whether it's a billboard or you, know, you go to the grocery store and you see a specific type of food marketed a certain way, like how does having this knowledge affect either like your, the way that you purchase things or the way that you approach like consumerism? How does that affect you? Um, that's actually uh, that's a, an excellent question because one of my favorite things to do when I'm traveling outside the United States is go to stores, mm-hmm. to grocery stores. And you can tell a lot about a country with the way that it presents food, right? So United States is, I mean, top tier, top tier in food presentation. Do you know what I mean? Like it is just, it is all about the base. Like it has those little spray things out. The tomatoes are fresh and you look like you're farming. You know, like you're just like taking these things right out of the ground and it just feels so freaking natural. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when you go to grocery stores in other countries, 
the mindset is not necessarily about a presentation of bounty in the way that in the United States, you have these apples piled up in this perfect triangle with the leaves still on and they're a little moist, right? And it's telling you that we are a nation of plenty, mm-hmm. right? That the, the aesthetics of that makes you feel calm. It makes you feel like everything is going to be okay. We're not starving. Things are fine. Right? And like the presentation of food, the aesthetics of food matters yeah. and particularly. And, and you'll see that most expressly in the grocery stores, right? And so as soon as you go to another country and you see that the the way that other countries, their relationship with the way that food is shared and shared out, like it's very interesting. Like you go to a a shop in Spain, you're just going to see like pieces of meat hung, you know, on the hooks on top of the, you know, and it's not necessarily about plenty. It's like, let me show you, like, this is our technique, you know, Mm -hmm. like our food has a way to eat it, a way to prepare it. And it's it's showing off the methodology, right? And so it's just a very different way that people kind of approach that aesthetic, mm-hmm. particularly with grocery stores. I'm just interesting that you said that because I, I do that a lot. Go to grocery stores in other countries. Yeah, I, I think I... I feel like grocery stores, I feel like that's, I think it was an Anthony Bourdain thing. I, I, I think like he also said so, exactly similar to you. Like he said, it's like, if you want to understand the culture of a place that you're visiting, like go to the local, don't go to a, oh like go to the local grocery store. Like you'll actually see. And I, I feel like I think about that even when I'm at my own local grocery stores all yeah. the time, like even just around my neighborhood, like there's a difference between going to like a big Kroger or Giant Eagle for anyone yeah. who's listening in Meyer, like going to like, the local Asian market and like actually yep. interacting with people. Yeah. I was super curious. How would you say this passion of yours and this like supreme interest in the way that things are conveyed both in like ugliness and beauty and how everything is, is conveyed in the world. Like how would you say that affects your writing process? If it, if it does at all, we'll be back with more passions and prologues after this break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now, back to passions and prologues. I would say for Pride and Protest, it was honestly the the origin, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's here's the Pride and Protest origin story. Interestingly enough, so I was um, reading just like massive amounts of data on dating apps, right, mm-hmm. and about like how who's responded to and at what rate, etc. And what I found was that Black women. And Asian men were the least like responded to in these dating apps. And like the idea was that like in, in these digital spaces, the, these particular groups had less sexual capital. Right. Mm-hmm. And because of our own notions of like masculinity and power and our own notions of femininity and softness and beauty. Right. That black women and Asian men were kind of left outside of this arena of mm-hmm. like online dating. And because I was already, I already live in Jane Austen's world, right? Uh, and tinkering with Jane Austen and rethinking her, I, I wondered, like, what would it look like to cast this number one most, like, romantic, like, this iconic romantic hero, mm-hmm. Mr. Darcy, 
as an Asian man, right? And what would it look like to cast this delightful, desirable woman as a black woman? Mm-hmm. And it started from there, from that that very discussion of like who gets to be desired and who gets to be um, a desirable person in society. And then it just kind of grew from from there. Yeah. So I, I want to get more deeply into Pride and Protest in a second, but I actually I also want to ask like, uh, where did your love of Jane Austen come from, and and kind of like when did that unfold as well? Oh, oh man, I'm, I, I was also very young, and I was watching Clueless. I think I was. 11 mm-hmm. or 12. And Clueless, if you're of a certain generation, it was just revolutionary. It was just like we said all the words as if like you, we said everything, we did everything, we wanted to dress like Cher, like everything yeah. um, was Clueless. And it just like rocked my teenage world. <laughs> and I just got super into it and I found out it was an Emma adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually a pretty faithful Emma adaptation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, Emma, you know, oh, there, there's more, there's more like this. And at that same year, banner year for Jane Austen, the 1995 version, right, of, <laughs> of Pride and Prejudice came out. Mm-hmm. And those two combined, like that year, 1995, like no one was escaping Jane Austen alive, really. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you, you're forever changed. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say like from there on, I was just completely hooked on the magic of Jane Austen. And I will say because Clueless was my gateway drug, I always was like very interested in what these characters would look like today mm-hmm. and about how they translated. Because I didn't start off in the purest form, because I started off in an adaptation, in a modern adaptation, sometimes I even read thinking what things would look like today. Yeah. I feel like as an anthropologist, I want to like, I feel like I want to, ask you to do a study about like when people are in their teenage years who end up becoming like literary people like we are like what classic literature they like like I I'm a huge Russian lit fan like I remember when I was like 15 16 17 reading like Brothers Karamazov wow and, and like all this different stuff and I like now I I feel like I can see a direct line between that and like loving sad depressing books like it's like oh. I feel like, the, I oh. feel like there's a there should be like a, uh, almost like a BuzzFeed thing. Like if you like Jane Austen, you probably like this now. Type of, uh, That's type of genius. I got into the Russians for a little bit. I didn't, I didn't come out well, but I still <laughs> have a deep love of Nabokov. Deep love. Oh, yeah. Yes. Gorgeous, gorgeous, super playful mm-hmm. writer. You know, like I just, one of my favorite things about him, I think this is in Lolita. I think he also does in another work as well, where he has these like, fake citations mm-hmm. oh <laughs> when I tell you I just love like the playful winking detail of yeah. the of those types of things I I really love it yeah that's uh I I could we could do a whole thing about Russian lit but I want to get I want to get back to pride and protest so how I guess first I want to let you tell people a little bit more about it but then I'm also like a secondary question like um you know you spend so much time with a specific book when you're when you're writing it I would love to know like how this specific Jane Austen book was the one that you wanted to kind of reimagine. But first, let's get it like, do a little like intro to Pride and Protest before we do that. Okay, so Pride and Protest is my debut novel. Mm-hmm. It is about Lisa B. One of my favorite lines is the only DJ that gives a jam. Right? <laughs> she, she wants to take her neighborhood back from mm-hmm. what she sees as these soulless property developers. 
and they're dropping these unaffordable condos on every street corner in D.C., right? But her planned protest, this is like their meet cute that it's really one of the, my favorite scenes to write in this book. Her planned protest at their corporate event um, takes a turn for the worst <laughs> after she mistakes um, this extremely um, hot person waiting outside with a very nice suit um, as for the wait staff. <laughs> um, she mistakes him for the wait staff and it's like an unforgivable crime to um, to Dorsey, who is the adopted son in this family, right? Mm-hmm. And is already struggling with his own kind of identity. So they go toe-to-toe and some sparks fly, right? But Lisa's family is all there and they're like thwarting her at every turn. But <laughs> In the end, she just she she tries to like get him out of her neighborhood, and but I I think by the end of the book, she's just she's settled with you know getting out of her head, really, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so so what was it about this specific Jane Austen book that you were like ah, I want to um, because obviously I feel like uh, reimaginings are such an awesome space. I remember talking to um, Kaylin Bayron about this type of stuff, and mm-hmm. she. Like she has, she gets on her. She said this, so I'm uh, I'm gonna feel comfortable saying it. She's like, she gets on her soapbox when people yes. say like, "Oh, it's just a reimagine." It's such a like you're basically just taking an old story. It's so much easier to write those. Exactly. Yeah. No, so yeah. No. That's exactly. So she's like, she gets real mad about that. It's like, um, because but it's such like a fertile space. I actually just got done reading a book called um, Darling Girl, which is like a reimagining of Peter Pan, and I loved it. It was so so good. It's super dark. But like, what was it about this? specific Jane Austen book that you're like, ah, this is the one I want to start with. I love this book. Um, not only because I just know it like the back of my hand. It was a story that like once, you know what, not to compare myself to like Duke Ellington, but the thing that they say about like jazz or like being able to do a ton of improvisational jazz Mm -hmm. is that it starts from knowing the beats, like by heart. Right. Right. It starts from a deep ingrained knowledge of the actual structure of music. Right. And you're Mm -hmm. able to actually improvise and create something new as a result of having ingrained knowledge of those beats. Mm -hmm. And I think that having read it so often and having come to it for comfort so often, you get this ingrained knowledge of the beats, you know, where to go to feel a certain thing. Mm -hmm. And then like your mind just does this interesting jazz with it, you know, to say like, what if this happened? What if you skip this? What happens then? Yeah. And it becomes this thought experiment. And so the, the books that I've read over and over become really ripe for retelling because you can really just create these interesting jazz riffs mm-hmm. off of these very well-known notes. And that's, that was one of the things I was very interested in doing. I love that. That's such an interesting way to think about it because you're absolutely right. Like Duke Ellington couldn't have created like in a sentimental mood without knowing how to do like every single structured specific part about being like a classically trained musician without doing that. And like, to your point, and while you were saying that, I was just thinking, again, I just read this, this darling girl. I'm like, I love Peter Pan as well. And so like, but when you reimagine or retell a story, there's reader expectations. Like there are certain beats that even if it's not like verbatim, like people want to have that when they're reading it or they're listening to the audiobook, whatever it is, they want to be like, Oh, Oh, I get it. And like, and if you miss those, people will be like, wait a minute, this is like not, a, I feel like there's almost more pressure to adapt something that people absolutely love. 
You're exactly right. It's like that Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's just like pointing at the screen. (laughs) (laughs) Like people want to feel that and this interesting sense of unfamiliarity too, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's like you love your house and you know your house, but you turn off the lights in your own house right? And everything's black and you're walking around you go, oh, that's the couch. And there's this like touch of relief, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of like, everyone's in their favorite house, but all the lights are off, right? And you still have to rediscover it in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. That's fun for people. Yeah. I usually, I know that this is your debut novel, but like, did, did you feel pressure taking on a story that so many people do love so dearly? Oh, absolutely. I'm like very much part of the like Jane Austen community. And I am here, like I hear the absolute turmoil when it's adapted, you know, like when persuasion was adapted, all of Jane Austen community was just like, we're flipping tables. We're just like, what? You can't use those words, you know? (laughs) So you can just imagine, like, I felt incredible pressure because people feel so, they feel like they grew up with these characters. They don't want to see them be smirched. Like they don't want to see anything bad happen to them. But I wrote this character, Lydia, who is like, or Lydia, right? And mm-hmm. in, in my book, her name is Lydia. And she is, you know, twerking to orchestral music. You know what I mean? So like, so like that's, that's the level that I wanted to bring to those characters. And I'm sure that someone will read that and say like, Jane Austen characters should not twerk. How right? dare. Yeah. How dare, you know? People are going to clutch their pearls. There's yeah. also a lot of spice on the page. It's, it's open door. So mm-hmm. some people would also say like Jane Austen, you know, would be, wouldn't approve, yeah. right? But that's a lot of like, because of the time it was written, sort of, mm-hmm. I would snap, I would clap back at anyone who says like, uh, it wouldn't be spicy. Like it was spicy for the time. Yeah, that's, it really was. That's kind of the point. Um, is this something you want to continue doing with books, like reimagining stuff like this? Or are you you thinking through something a little bit different for a second book? It's entirely possible you can't tell me as well, which I'm... Oh, no, no, I can tell you. Um, For my second book, I love reimaginings. In fact, I just finished The Weight in Blood. It's like a Black retelling of Carrie. Oh, oh, it was was dark. It was dark, but it was phenomenal. (laughs) I love retellings. Oftentimes... That's like a way to get me to auto buy something. It'll say like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a retelling of Beauty and the Beast, but, you know, set in Compton. I'm like, sis, say less. <laughs> like, it is bought, you know? But yeah, so my next book is a retelling of Sense and Sensibility about these, you know, two sisters who <laughs> have very different temperaments and are mm-hmm. forced to revamp an inn in Maine, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's called Sex, Lies, and Sensibility because... Mm-hmm. The the Eleanor character is kind of running away from a, a viral event, you know? You can only guess the content of in DC, you know? Ah, oh, man, I love that so much. Speaking of sort of reimaginings, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Alexis Henderson, but she writes horror and spooky books. And she wrote, she's written two, one, The Year of the Witching, which is just like best, it was, that was her debut novel, uh, her debut novel, I think I want a good resource for it. It was like the best horror book I've read in so long. And then she just had a second book that came out called House of Hunger. And it's like a reimagining loosely based on the uh, Countess Bathory, the person who like was kind of allegedly like a vampire and like wow. bathed in blood and all these different stuff. It's yeah, it's called House of Hunger. And again, her first one is 
the year of the witching. She was she was on the the podcast uh, earlier. Oh in the my year, but gosh! Yeah, I think you would love them. I only I only mention them. They they are dark, but you mentioned having just oh, yeah. read a dark books. Come on! So. And I, I also just recently I've been reading a lot of um, Native American horror and. Have you read Only Good Indians? Oh my gosh. I was honestly, I mean, if you didn't say Only Good Indians, I was going to say you need to read Only Good Indians. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I was shookest. Okay. Yeah, and when yeah, we yeah, talk yeah. about like retellings of folklore, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is precisely what I mean, how something can be fresh and be a story told over and over and over again at the same yeah. time. Right. And also from a, like from a logistical standpoint, again, like being in the literary world, I'm querying a novel right now, like having worked with, like talked with so many authors over the years, on like a big part of being able to market and promote your book is like having that quick hook. And so mm-hmm. that's another thing, like um, there's another horror novelist, Don Kurtagich, who was also recently on the, the show. Uh, mm-hmm. She has, her most recent book is called Teeth in the Mist. And it's like this Faustian horror novel yeah the face you just made people want to see it gave me me, like the eyes open like mouth like jaw dropped like that was a big part of like yes she wanted to write that story but she was also she's told me she's like well yeah but also I it needs to be marketed properly so like for pride and protest it would be an incredible book if it had nothing to do with Jane Austen because you're a phenomenal writer but also the fact that you can like tell people like hey it's a you know it's pride and prejudice it's a reimagine like, that sparks people's interest instantly because there are all those people who have read those books when they were 13, 14, yeah. 17 years old. And they like, they're always looking for a book like that. You're absolutely right. Also just writing down these horror ranks. Yeah. I, when we stop gorgeous. recording, I'll, I can give you some more. Cause there, that is, um, that is something I spent on probably too much time reading is dark books. But speaking of recommending stuff, I always end this show with having the author who is visiting give a recommendation. It can be a book. You could talk about a report you think people should check out. It could be a movie. It could be a recipe that you think more people should enjoy. One of my first guests talked about a protein powder, like anything you want to recommend that people should know more about. The floor is yours. Oh my gosh. Um, Anything that I want to recommend. Mm -hmm. Gosh, there's so many things. I want to (laughs) recommend this app called 10% 10% happier. Ooh. And it is a meditation. It started off as this meditation app, but it's so much more than that. It's just mm. this guy who is like talking to you about like, hey, you think you can't meditate. You think you can't find peace, right? He wrote a book called like Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And so this app is really, it gives you it, it takes the mystery out of meditation. Like there's mm-hmm. this meditation and it's just called five small breaths. And it just brings you along this journey to make it feel imminently possible to find those moments of mindfulness and yeah, 10% happier. And it's just perfect. And it's, it under promises and really over delivers. Do you yeah. know what I mean? On the thing. It's just like, Hey, this can, this is just a small thing. And that's what his focus is on, like these just tiny moments. Nikki, Pride and Protest is so, so wonderful. And we're recording this like on book release week. And I was so excited to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. 
It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.